I found the science. I found the science. This is this is celebratory. We should be so excited. The very thing that everyone's calling for, the public health advice, the science. Why won't you release it? What's going on? I think I've found it. Well, at least some of it. Okay. Let's have a look. Let's have a look. There's this thing called the Burnett Institute. Have you heard of the Burnett? Oh, let me show you. I'll show you my screen. This, this is the Burnett Institute, right? These people come up with models, you know, like climate modeling. This is what we do if we, if we don't curb our carbon dioxide emissions, you know, the temperature is going to do this. This is, this is them predicting what's going to happen. Now, let me tell you why this is, we're going to go through two reports by the Burnett Institute, right? One very recent and one from the big lockdown last year to show you where politicians are getting this impetus to move the goalposts all the time. I think it becomes very clear when you start to read these reports. But let me first show you the relevance of the Burnett Institute. Last year, our uh, Deputy Chief Health Officer, what's his name? Alan Cheng, he admitted where they get these models from. So do you remember last year they were talking in September, they're talking about opening up and why we couldn't open up and so on. Well, here last year he talked about uh, DHH officials were using the University of Melbourne modeling, right? And a new model by the Burnett Institute, which is what we're looking at today, okay? So these this is the type of things that you're seeing them rely upon. So let's go through one and let's see if you can see why exactly they're making the decisions they're making because i think it's quite obvious all right burnett institute this is covisim modeling COVID 19 an individual based model assessing the impact of easing COVID 19 restrictions okay then it has a preamble about COVID and so on all right this is it projected epidemic outcomes for COVID 19 strains against different vaccine rollouts 11th of june 2021 so today's 15th this is four days old estimating impacts of an outbreak without public health interventions, that's code for lockdowns and so on, after vaccines have been administered. This will explain a lot. Okay, in this graph, right, it asks the question written at the top there, what if we allow COVID-19 to let it rip, to spread throughout Victoria? What would happen after vaccinations have been done? So look, look here we go. Epidemic projections if COVID-19 enters the community after 60% of Victorians are vaccinated with the major public, uh, with no major public health response. Well, it's actually not 60%. If you read this fine print here, it's more like 80. So let's have a look. We have scenario one in red and scenario blue, scenario two in blue, okay? The total number of ICU admissions on the left and the total number of deaths on the right. Now keep in mind, this is, estimates this is modeling this is predictions this is fortune telling predict the future kind of stuff this is not what has actually happened okay now i'll go through exactly what these numbers are in a minute but just some assumptions first behind this graph so that they have assumptions which they've written underneath down here uh i'll read these three first and then we'll go back up to the graph so the critical points for understanding these these projections in this graph is number one the scenario assumes a user-defined vaccine rollout speed of 150-250,000 doses a week. Okay, cool. Second assumption, the scenarios do not currently include any major public health responses to gain control of outbreaks. On detection of the first case, the model assumes symptomatic testing, so not asymptomatic, just symptomatic. If you have symptoms, get tested, that type of thing. Uh, increasing, mass becoming recommended but not mandatory. And contact tracing continues, but only up to 250 diagnoses per day. All right. That's the second assumption of the models we're about to look at. Third, 
The results are based on collection of model assumptions about the context of individual disease transmission dynamics. Uh, they're optimist. It is if these best estimate assumptions are optimistic or pessimistic, then compared with these projections, actual epidemic outcomes would be more optimistic or pessimistic, respectively. Okay, so it's just a bunch of words to say we could be right or we could be wrong. Long story short. All right, let's look at the numbers. So we have ICU 15. 16, 16,770 admissions in red in scenario one, uh, but only 5,800 in scenario two in blue. What's the difference between the scenarios? Scenario one is, the print is so fine. I have to move in. What does it say? Vaccinations continue to peak vaccine coverage of 80% of people over 60 years old and 70% of people under 60 years old all right and you've got unvaccinated people in icu in dark red and vaccinated people in icu in light red okay this is after vaccination reaching 60 percent or 80 percent sorry okay 80 percent over 60 years old vaccine vaccinated and 70 percent of people vaccinated under 60 years old so basically the numbers that we've been asking what number of vaccination will we be free here it is uh the model doesn't even say we'll be free. It says that it's the worst case scenario. It's the red bars. What we want to get to is the blue bars, right? The blue bars where hardly anyone's in ICU and hardly anyone's dying. What's that? That's scenario two. Scenario two, vaccinations continue. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, 95% of people under and over 60 years old. 90, yep, it's such small print. 95% of everyone. So the difference here is if we can increase, this is what the modeling is telling us, if we can increase vaccination rate from 80% of old people and 75% of young people, which is the left hand, the red, if we can increase that to 95% of everybody, then we can have the blue columns. So this is the advice that is going to, there'd be lots of pieces of advice like this, but this is one of them that would be going to, that is going to the public health team and is therefore going to our politicians. And when they say to us, look, we have to get vaccinated to X number of rate. This is why this modeling is tell us that if they do that, they can save a lot of lives or more importantly, not kill a lot of lives because except for in the state of Victoria, usually when governments kill people, they pay for it uh, in the media and electorally and so on. So they don't want to be seen to have killed people by their inaction more so than their action. So this this graph here, this modeling is saying, hey, you really need to get everyone vaccinated up the wazoo to 95%. Otherwise, you know, a bunch of people are going to die. All right, moving down. They're the two scenarios and they come up with conclusions, three conclusions, very important conclusions based on that modeling we've seen. First of all, first conclusion written right here, vaccine hesitancy and the emergence of new COVID-19 variants mean that Australia is unlikely to ever achieve herd immunity. So forget about it. Forget about it. That's what, they, that's what, that's what this advice is going to our politicians, right? Second of all, public health, this is the huge conclusion. This is massive. Public health initiatives remain vital in controlling COVID-19, even in vaccinated populations. This is so, public health initiatives. So mask wearing, um, recommended mandatory laws, lockdowns, all this kind of the public health initiatives, right? They remain vital according to this advice, even in vaccinated populations. Further, without public health measures, 
Thousands of Victorians would be hospitalized and die. Grandma will die if an initially small outbreak was left to spread through the community unchecked. Okay, have you ever seen a scarier sentence? If this is coming to you as a government, then holy heck, you're thinking thousands of people will die. And this is what we hear. We literally hear these lines from from James Molino and soon to be Dan Andrews to return. Welcome back, my friend. They say thousands will die if we don't do this because that's what the that's what the science says. Well, this modeling says this is where they're getting it from. And the last conclusion, Australia requires higher vaccine coverage to return to normal life. That is completely contradictory to the conclusion immediately before it in the bullet point above. Bullet point number two says that even in a vaccinated population, you're going to still have to do public health interventions and initiatives, lockdowns and so on to control it because because thousands of people will die if we allow a small outbreak to grow. And then the third point says higher vaccine coverage and we can go back to normal. It's self-contradictory. Anyway, they're the three conclusions of this first report that we've been through. That's what's going to government. That's what they're making their decisions on. How do you think this is going to go? Australia? Of course it's going to go the way it's going, unless you're Gladys, who seems to stand up to them. All right. Second, second study here by the Burnett Institute we're going to look at, and then we'll finish. The second one is estimating risks associated with early opening in Victoria. Now, this is all about September, 26th of September 2020, right? This is about when we're in lockdown and and we're saying, can we open up on September 14th? And they said no, and then the 28th, and then we got under five uh, rolling, uh, five cases per day on average, rolling over 14 days. And then that was what the roadmap said, and we still couldn't be let out. And we're like, why do you keep shifting the goalposts, Dan? Well, this is why. Watch this. In this study, again, modeled, right? Just like just like we have climate change models, we estimate and project, and then no one ever seems to go back to see whether they're true or not. But we, we project. It's hypothetical. In this study, we used COVID to estimate the risk of Victoria experiencing a third COVID-19 epidemic wave if stage four restrictions back in September 2020 were eased on the 14th or two weeks later on the 28th. So we're comparing this two-week delay. In both scenarios, restrictions were eased to a level of restrictions similar to Victoria pre-stage three, uh, which is approximately the final step in that purple roadmap that we no longer follow. All right, talks about it. No worries, no worries. Let's go down to the graphs. Here is the scary graphs based on the 14th of September versus the 20th of September. Do you remember when they were saying, no, we've got to give them more time? This is what happened. We had a rise here, new diagnoses per day. It's peaking up, BLM rallies around there, peaking up, restrictions, restrictions, lockdown. After the lockdown happened, the final stage four curfew, shoot you if you go more than five kilometers from your home. Massive drop in cases, uh, infections, uh, positive tests, right? To be expected. Smash the, smash the, uh, smash everything. Smash the economy, smash mental health, but also smash uh cases uh down 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 to almost nothing and then here's where we said okay daddy we're, we're below we're below your five cases per day can we please come out please no remember that no because if we let you out too soon look at the big scary curve look at this big red early from the 14th of september if we just wait a little bit longer the models indicate to the blue line if we then let you out to play then look, look at this nice flat curve. That's much more manageable. You see what I mean? You see, can you see what's going on here? Can you see uh, this is the science that is going, one of many pieces, going to our politicians 
of course they're gonna do of course they're gonna keep moving the goalposts of course they're gonna keep saying all right look here's the conclusions that they're making their decisions on this is the conclusion of the second the second model here Overall, our results suggest that Victoria would not have been able to safely return to New South Wales-style restrictions on the 14th of September, and there would be a high risk associated with lifting all restrictions at once on the 28th of September. In other words, you can't do what New South Wales did. I don't know why. Luck, they keep saying. Anyway, the, the public health advice is saying you can't do what New South Wales have done on the 14th and it's even saying there is a high risk associated with lifting all restrictions on the at the same time on the 28th so they're saying look you don't want to un, you don't want to release people here and you don't want to release people here and even when you do start to release people here you want to release them slowly to really keep a lid on this this outbreak okay <sighs> key recommendations come here uh, releasing on the 14th of September would have posed an extremely high risk of epidemic resurgence in 86% of the simulations where restrictions were eased on the 14th. Cases rose to over 100 per diagnoses per day within four weeks. Second of all, releasing on the 28th of September, two weeks later, has a high but reduced risk of epidemic resurgence. Instead of 86% of simulations, only 41% of simulations showed that restrictions uh, being eased on the 28th uh, cases would rise to over 100 diagnoses per day within four weeks, so slightly less. The use of epidemiological markers in the relaxation roadmap can considerably reduce risks. The third conclusion uh, here saying a major predictor of outbreak trajectory was the number of cases per day at the time of relaxation. Uh, four restrictions to get under 30, under 10 resulted in less of a resurgence. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, further work is required to assess the risk associated with a staged easing of restrictions blah 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 okay cool so there you go there you have it there's the two studies both saying some quite serious scenarios and let me just give some commentary to end us off okay so i studied law right then i went and practiced migration law for a while hated it but anyway this is what i discovered and i had a medical clinic and i worked with doctors so i've worked with these kind of risk management professionals and let me tell you something about these people they specialize in their area. If you're an epidemiologist, you think of epidemiology. If you're a work safe inspector, you think of a safe workplace. If you're a restaurant inspector, health inspector for a restaurant, you're looking for dirty things, right? Like you, you specialize in what you do and you, you think in the realms of, of your profession. When I employed an oncologist, I had a number of medical professionals that I employed. The oncologist was, was more cognizant talking about whatever it was, um, we're talking about uh, exposure to BPAs through plastic at one stage and, and different practitioners of mine had different takes on it. Of course, the oncologists were saying, well, there's an associated higher risk of BPA exposure through thermal receipts from those printer rolls with incidences of, of cancer. So there's potentially a hormonal signaling thing there happens because it's an endocrine disruptor BPA, which is on these thermal receipts. And so, but he's thinking through cancer because that's what he does. He's an oncologist. My nutritionist and naturopath was thinking about um, how that would affect the the absorption rates and detoxification pathways if you're overloading your body with bpa from these receipts and how that would affect your nutritional needs because that's how they think right they my uh hormone doctors who did hormone replacement therapy were thinking about how the thermal receipts again were going to throw off hormone profiles and and increase have an increase of estrogen dominance in men and women when they're exposed to bpas as opposed to having that balanced out by uh, progesterone and a high dominance of estrogen you know was associated with <clears throat> hormonal cancers like breast cancer anyway so the point is 
Of course, they're gonna think along the lines of their risk profiles. If you ask a lawyer, should I start a media company? Mm, look, here's the risk, here's what could go wrong. Maybe you should, should I start a product company? Mm, product liability, should I sell? I had a nut business at one time. Should I sell nuts? You know what they said to me? There's a lot of allergies with nuts. Like, why don't you start a business selling something that's less allergic? Can you see the pattern? You see the pattern? These experts are paid, they're desi- that's their job, and they're very good at it. We need them. They're, a bridge engineer is design, he's, by design, his expertise is to make sure a bridge doesn't fall down. So, you know, for example, with the lawyers, their job is to see what's, what's potentially going to happen. If you, if you tried to start and run a business based purely on the advice of your lawyer, You'd never start anything because there's risks with everything. If you tried to buy a house with a really good lawyer doing the conveyancing, they'll come up with all the, the risks and the reasons and the issues and the potholes. Oh my goodness. <coughs> Why you shouldn't buy the house. I remember submitting a contract once before I studied law. I went to, I had to pay a lawyer to go over a contract to employ one of my practitioners. And it was such a simple contract and uh, came back like you know five page contract but it comes back with 20 pages of notes on on why the lawyer who the first lawyer who prepared that contract had missed this and missed this and what if happens if this happens and what if and what if and what if and the truth is the lawyer was doing his job that's his job to think about worst case scenario because imagine if imagine if the lawyer said oh nah just you'll be right just give it a go (laughs) that's malpractice can you imagine if the public health official said look it could be real bad, but don't worry about it, Dan. Just, I mean, I think we'll, we'll probs be okay. Like probs, you know. Maybe do some masks. Maybe a little bit of lockdowns, but overall, we'll be, we'll look, we'll fix it when we get there as well. Like we'll be okay. That's not, that's not what they're there to do, and that's not how they think. And that's not how they're trained. They're trained to say, no, no, no. Look, this is what could happen. Here's the models that we just looked at. It could get really bad, and so this here underscores the need for leadership you know this morning completely unrelated to this interview okay nothing to do with the man but a very important man was in here this morning he was very very high as in he was the chief commissioner of victoria police so he understood risk he understood management he understood leadership he had to lead thousands of police through and do a whole bunch of things this man was telling me about leadership leadership is about making decisions and wearing the consequences, sticking with them. And yet now, following chief commissioners, his, his, uh, his, his uh, accusation is, is that they are less like that. They're more shifting responsibility onto other people because no one wants to make a decision. In fact, he told me a really interesting story. When he was uh, chief commissioner, he had a uh, superintendent, very, 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 very high, like above inspectors, right? Uh, basically just underneath assistant commissioner and then commissioner, you know, so the, the deputy superintendents, one of them had a very basic matter and referred it to the boss, to this chief commissioner and said, I felt I should send this to you because it needed a senior police officers uh, officer to look at it. And he sent that back with a note written on it. What the bloody hell do you think you are? Right. A senior police officer. So in other words, make a decision, do your job. And this buck passing happens all the time. Another thing we talked about this morning with this commission was about the code inquiry because this this chief commission is also a barrister, also headed up the uh, prosecution department of Victoria Police. So he's very well versed in the law. And he um, he was talking about the code inquiry that we had recently, investigation into the hotel quarantine inquiry, the code inquiry. 
and how terrible it was. It was a creeping assumption and there was nobody made the decision to use security guards and whatever. So everyone is saying, I don't know, I don't know. It's a, the decision's an orphan. Uh, and they're referring back to other pieces of advice and this said that and I, I don't know. And then this, just what they're doing now with the modeling. So if you come back now and say, you killed 800 people, Dan, right? Which people are saying Dan lied, people died. Both actually factual statements whether it was dan's fault or not is something we're all debating right but it is true dan did lie and it's true people died on his watch all right now he will say but the mod the bernard institute the modeling said this i had no choice and we heard that recently we heard james molino acting premier say we have no choice we did not we we there is no choice to enter lockdown it's a complete lie any leader would say i chose i'm sorry this is what we have to do we're going to do it but James didn't. James Molina said, I have no choice. There is no choice. We didn't make the choice, he said. He was so like, welcome to 1984 type of stuff. And he handballed it. You know, this is brought to incredible stark relief, as in you can really see it when you think about eight-year-old Cooper. Cooper died, a little kid, eight-year-old, drowned at a school camp in Warnham, near Warrnambool, Western Victoria Regional, a couple of weeks ago. And we did a tribute to him on this on 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 one of my shows uh that i produce the other side of australia i'll put a link below because in there we showed imagery and we showed video of james molino and chief health officer brett Sutton being asked why they wouldn't provide an exemption for this eight-year-old's funeral to have the funeral they they wanted to um, put the people in an outdoor setting and complies a mask social distancing whatever you want even though there's zero cases in regional there's no COVID out there at all, but they're under lockdown. And so they couldn't have the funeral for this eight-year-old kid, right? An exemption was granted by the exemptions team for people to play sport in the MCG at the same time. I think it was on the same day, but around the same time. But they refused the exemption for eight-year-old Cooper's funeral. Now, journalists asked them about this, right? So first they asked James Molino, what is going on? Why did this happen? James Molino handballed it. He says, oh, well, that's a public health matter. I'll ask uh, Brett, uh, Chief Health Officer Brett Sutton to Professor Sutton to comment on that. So straight away, not my problem. No decision. It's Brett Sutton. Brett Sutton gets up. You know what he says? This is a terrible situation. I can't believe, you know, this kid died. He's terrible. It's terrible. It's terrible. Uh, but, you know, this exemption team work really hard. He started to mount a defense for the exemptions team. What a horrible human being. He started to mount a defense saying this is very this was a very, very difficult decision for the exemptions team and what they go through trying to make these decisions is very hard. <laughs> all of our sympathy. Forget Cooper. He's dead. Who cares? It's all about the exemptions team. And then he said, in the end, they decide or it he said, in the end, it was it was refused, the exemption. Uh, and then he said it was on the grounds of equity. Because it wouldn't be fair if other people wanted to have a funeral, we'd have to grant them funerals as well. What a horrible human being Brett Sutton is. He didn't even take responsibility. Not only did he mount a defense of the exemptions team, they are an unknown, anonymous public servants. He, he, he wouldn't even say, look, I've reviewed the case and unfortunately I've had to make this hard decision and I've just, I, they, made, they said no and I reviewed it and I said look, I'm going to have to make this hard call. He just pushed it off onto the same attitude we have here with, that's the science. That's the science. It wasn't me. It was the science. 
unbelievable so there you go that that's that's i hope i hope you found that helpful i certainly found that helpful that that is what is going on around the world people are pointing to modeling and experts who are well within their rights to to warn us about certain things and and they may be right or they may be wrong but the point is we are outsourcing leadership we are becoming managers and we are just doing whatever the science says with no sense of i have to make the decision in the end and that my friends is not leadership that is management it's the same attitude i'll finish with this analogy it is the same attitude that says there could be a snake under that log have you been bushwalking have you not even bushwalking you just walked around like in the parks long grass if you walk through like even around here in melbourne you know there's trails and stuff there's a lot of logs and stuff i haven't seen a single snake even my little kids going around playing i'm thinking oh be careful there might be snakes but every time they jump over a log lift a log push some branches aside there's never i've never seen a snake are there snakes there yes 100 percent, there are snakes out there but we haven't seen any could there be a snake under the log of course there could be a snake under the log but how many logs do we get to lift up and there are no snakes these epidemiologists are doing their job they're saying hey snakes live in the bush and if you've got a little four-year-old picking up a log under in the bush there could be a snake underneath that might bite them they're 100 percent correct but how many snakes are under the every time you 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 uh lift up a log it's like there could be a snake under here well most often there's not and that's the point here that's the point about our COVID 19 response a leader would weigh up the risks and the benefits they would do a cost benefit analysis in terms of lives saved versus lives lost because of lockdown because lock there is no solution lockdowns don't save lives lockdowns save some lives and cost others there are no solutions there are only trade-offs thomas soul sent said and that is the job of a leader to make hard decisions and right now we don't have any leaders they're not making hard decisions liberals too liberals up in in federal are doing the same thing they're outsourcing not taking any risks not taking any responsibility and we are not standing for it anymore and most importantly we can see what you're doing we can see the modeling ourselves we can see what you're relying on and what you're pointing to and i tell you what that is not good enough that is not leadership so i hope you enjoyed that little expose on uh where i think they're getting the impetus from and i think it's a completely rational it's a completely understandable but completely horrible horrible human beings making those decisions but it's completely understandable why they're making these horrible decisions because they themselves are scared witless by the science time to get new leaders 